this chapter is being written right now. But without a major intervention, all of the equality, inequality, and inequity that we experience in the domestic work markets offline will simply continue online and be amplified at great scale and with great speed if we don't figure out how to change that. That was Palak Shah of the National Domestic Worker Alliance. We met her in our last episode, and I'm Bama Athreya, host of The Gig. This season has been about domestic and care work and how it's being changed by technology. When I started interviews for this podcast in 2019, I meant it to be more generally about the ways in which platforms were changing all kinds of informal and low-wage work around the world. But while I was doing those interviews, gig workers in the transportation sector, drivers worldwide, were starting to connect with each other. And that led to something quite amazing. The first season of the gig, The Ride, tracked a growing movement. Drivers organized simultaneous actions around the world. They shared legal strategies. But those coordinated actions started off with just a handful of people who felt like they weren't being respected. I expected a basic support system for drivers, somebody that I could call and discuss any maybe issues or questions or problems. I felt like, okay, I'm really, I'm all by myself. And even this company who I'm out here making money for can't even help me. There's nobody there to talk to. That was Rebecca Stack Martinez, one of the drivers in California I spoke with in season one of the gig. Now let's come back to something I thought I'd be talking about all along. Who cares for us and how platforms are transforming domestic and care work? Just a few weeks ago, in December of 2021, as we were finalizing production and getting ready to release this season, something quite remarkable happened in India. December seems to be quite a month for gig worker actions in India. The sounds and the images I was seeing last month were strangely familiar to a wave of protests that took place in December 2019, but that time it was ride-hailing drivers. India's driver protests were a harbinger of driver actions around the world. And this may explain why I think it's so extremely important for everyone in the world to pay attention to an action involving several dozen personal care workers a few weeks ago. And perhaps you'll understand why we're calling this final episode, Who's the Fairest? This year, because of the pandemic, I couldn't travel to India. For other reasons, I couldn't interview these workers in person. So I'm introducing you to Somyarendra Barik. He's a journalist, and he'll tell us how he ended up reporting on a protest that no one else was paying attention to. To be very honest, it happened by chance. I was working on a separate uh, story, which was related to Ola. So I was researching on that story to get some expert comments. I was talking to uh, a researcher at the Center for Internet and Society called Ambika Tandon, who was working on some separate research paper, for which she had interviewed a few women who work at Urban Company. So we were just having a discussion about my story. She told me oh, that, hey, by the way, they're planning like something like this. And whenever this happens, I'll let you know. Before we find out more from Somya, I wanted to remind listeners of my discussion in episode three of this season with Kala Zainab. 
She also interviewed these workers who find jobs on a platform called Urban Company, and she explained to us exactly how its business model worked. You have to first upfront directly pay the commission to the platform, and then you go on to deliver the service. And when you are paid, you earn back the commission that uh, you have already paid out to the platform. And often this refund of the commission is delayed. So which means that workers can go six months of just delivering services after services and continuing to pay commission to the platform, but they are not getting their income back because urban companies holding on to it. So this, yeah, this credit system is actually particularly insidious because even before you go and deliver the service, you've already paid the platform. Platform has had its payday while you may have your payday six months later or not. And hence, I think the strikes were really the moment of contesting and asking for some basic things. In a nutshell, this billion-dollar company is raking in credit for itself through making workers leave behind part of their payment for several months. But a few dozen women decided to take on that model. Now let's hear more from Somya. I asked how he learned about the first wave of protests, which took place in October of 2021. We'll be interspersing this interview with live audio from those protests, which Somya has generously shared. The strikes that first broke out, at least more than 100 women, they decided that they'll get together and they'll come in front of the company's office next to the national capital. And they were there and they started protesting. They started raising slogans against the company. There were multiple turns of discussion between these workers and the management, but they weren't coming to some sort of an agreement. And to be very honest, had this issue not been picked up properly by the media, I don't feel that the company would have budged. I was the first reporter on the scene to cover it, and I started basically live tweeting the entire thing on a Twitter thread, and the thread became extremely viral. About 300 meters away, I could really see a couple of police vans parked in their hundreds, just shouting slogans against the company, demanding that the company's founder, Abhiraj Pehel, come out and talk to them and you just find some common grounds and just listen to their demands. So as you were entering that area, you knew that something very powerful was happening. Just the simple fact that these are women who are mothers, apart from just having this job, this is not the only job that they have. When they go back home, they have 10 other things already lined up for them. Uh, so just to see that women actually taking time and coming out and sloganeering against this company, it showed you that it means so much to them. I asked Somya to explain what the women told him about why they were protesting. I think one of the biggest reasons that, the, that they went on strike is that the company doesn't understand where they're coming from. One of the workers who was leading the strike, her name was Seema, described it to me saying that they have this parameter called a behavioral rating. So it, it basically means that if you've gone to a person's house and if they don't feel that your behavior with them has been all right. And that's a very intangible sort of, of a parameter. How do you exactly define what is good behavior? For someone, maybe a very chatty beautician could be good behavior or, some, or for someone, maybe a too chatty beautician could not be good behavior. Things like these play a factor in what your overall rating is going to be. I was struck by what Somya said because it reminded me of something that's come up in every interview about care work. It's not just about control over wages and working conditions. It's about controlling women's behavior, making them conform to expectations, and making them feel ashamed when they don't act as expected. There's emotional labor, as Kola put it. Here's what she said. Whatever work women do, that it, and it doesn't have to be innately 
requiring any emotional component but wherever women are there is the expectation of affect of affective labor of some soft emotional kind of expectation is there from them care workers put care emotional labor into their work so what they want back goes beyond wages and working hours it has to do with something intangible that maybe can't be digitized something like respect and empathy this came out in Somia's description of how the workers he interviewed felt about their treatment by urban company there was good leadership and the people who eventually became the face of the entire protest when i spoke to the women and i did ask them about okay how did you you know manage to come out in such huge numbers in front of the company you know they were of course very they were upset and they had been upset with the company for the last 3 4 months before you know they came out and started protesting and there were actually multiple rounds of discussions with with the company before that they thought that yeah these discussions aren't going anywhere Somia described how he ended up becoming part of the women's WhatsApp groups. And as we're learning, for workers who are isolated and don't have a formal place to meet each other, digital organizing is becoming increasingly important. I went through these WhatsApp groups. I actually ended up eventually becoming a part of these WhatsApp groups uh, just to see the kind of discussions they're having. WhatsApp was definitely where they unionized in a symbolic way. And of course, there were many women who were just expressing themselves on the group as well. It wasn't just coordination and not just planning. I mean, it was also a group where the women were speaking up and speaking out about just how aghast they feel because of some of the company's policies and how genuinely they want these things to change. We've heard throughout both seasons of the gig lots of stories like this. Gig workers meet up and then figure out how to stay in touch using chat groups. But in India in December, the story took a wild turn when the company decided to get in on the chat. Of course the company was aware that these WhatsApp groups had been created and everything. They had already in their partner quote and quote partner apps, the other side of the app BS consumers don't see but yeah, the workers side of the app the company had sent a message that hey we've learned that some of you are planning to protest and it will be great if you don't protest and just peacefully go to work. Here's a little background for listeners. When workers in a formal workplace try to organize, sometimes they're subjected to anti-union propaganda. Posters and notices on bulletin boards, mandatory presentations. Now, platforms who claim they don't have workers are figuring out how to push anti-organizing messages through their apps. Now back to Somia. We would sense that even before the protest had actually started, there was already an attempt at intimidation by the company to you know somehow try and silence these women and then uh, the, the founder left in the middle and that led to a huge uproar uh, because the women felt cheated you know they were complaining i mean is this kind of dignity that should be getting or should be expecting from a company billion dollar unicorn va- valuation company there are so many disgruntled women out here and just leaving in the middle of all of it but was just not a generally good look for the company somia told me the workers won sort of the company promised to deal with the commission issue But instead of just giving workers the full payment for their services, the company figured out another tactic for withholding their money. They set up a subscription service. Workers who want to be guaranteed a certain number of jobs per month have to pay an upfront fee. These women had to pay to the company. For instance, if they paid 3000 rupees a month, then they had to do like a set number of jobs. Assuming that you do less than x number of jobs a month, 3000 rupees would not be credited back to your account. My friends in the anti-slavery movement might have a term for this. Now let's hear what happened in late December. So I'd say like there were at least about when I reached the site there were at least about 60 or 70 women there 
and I actually reached in the morning, but the protests had actually started a day before. They decided to stay back and they were like, we are not going to move till the company listens to us. We are going to just sit here. So they actually stayed back the entire night. And you know, we have to remind ourselves it's happening in December in Delhi and it's freezing cold. I reached in the morning and there were stories, all these women were saying that, you know, at like around 10 or 10.30 when they were sitting in the night, the company shut all of its lights off. They cut bathroom, uh, washroom access for them as, as well. And they were like, they talk about dignity and this is the kind of dignity that they're offering to us. So just to recap, these workers had to pay the company a commission and then do a set number of jobs to get it back. There was no flexibility. Then, Somya said, this billion-dollar company decided to sue these few dozen workers on the basis that their little WhatsApp groups were a form of collusion. Let's hear more. At around 5.30, a person from the court came and that person had this huge uh, pile of documents with him and just handed it over to one of the women who was protesting there. And that was a notice uh, from, from the district court and summoned four women in particular who were named. So in the time when the company was not talking to them at all, the company was actually preparing a petition, a lawsuit against these women, alleging them of unionizing against the company in an illegal way. Of course, I'm not a lawyer and uh, I can't speak to them. But the company's allegations were that this protest, this entire protest is illegal. And because these women have been sitting in front of the company gates, they're threatening the lives of other urban company employees and they have access to some uh, audio notes that show that how all of this is quote-unquote a premeditated criminal conspiracy. It's business interests and, and everything. I was at the protest. I can be an eyewitness. I personally would say that there was no moment where anyone's life or even the company property in any way was said. It was not even as much a push on the gate. This is completely outrageous. You did see the documents. What is likely to happen? These are women who, you know, they're not lawyers. They don't know what's supposed to happen when they are summoned by a district court, right? Of course, they are bound to get afraid, which is what ended up happening. And that deterred the protests. And that night they actually had plans. Of course, they, legally they didn't have any you know, backing to ask them to vacate that area because the court hadn't asked them to vacate it. But I, I think the, the main thing that the company had is women go away from their premises, in which they were, of course, very successful. The company's legal tactics succeeded in breaking the protest. And we might never have heard anything about it if not for Somya, a journalist with a lot of heart. But if the case goes forward, it has huge legal ramifications for gig workers all over the world. So I'm encouraging everyone to pay close attention to how India's courts rule on whether this small group of workers are allowed to use WhatsApp to chat with each other. Let's go back to Somya. This was the first time in India, sometimes very glamorous and of course mostly a disappointing internet journey over the last 10-15 years. A new age Indian tech company, which positions itself as a very progressive company, is actually going out and taking legal action, suing the very people, the groundwork for them at the end of the day. So this was very unprecedented in India. But just the very fact that, you know, a company could go out and sue its own workers. And, and, and to add insult to injury, to sue them after claiming that they're not workers. Exactly. You don't offer them most of the social security benefits that your regular employees end up getting. You don't consider them as your employees, but you find it very easy to just go out and sue them just because they were being a bit of an inconvenience for you. And worse yet, you know, the, what you've described, suing them on the grounds that they're not allowed to communicate with each other on WhatsApp groups. Exactly. <laughs> Which I don't know in what world that should ever be allowed. Of course, workers can talk to each other if they collectively feel that something is wrong with the company. Indian laws do allow for you to just you know, unionize and go out and protest. We have a right to unionize in this country. 
One of the best things that has happened in India recently is the rise of platform worker unions. Drivers and delivery workers are organizing. People who do online tasks are organizing. There's a new federation called the All India Gig Workers Union. And back here in the United States, groups like the National Domestic Workers Federation, Pollux Organization, have some wins to share too. Here's Pollock's story of how they sat down and started a new project with one of the least likely companies. About two years ago, I got a phone call from our friends at the National Employment Law Project. And they called me and they said, hey, we've seen a slew of bills that are popping up around the country that are called marketplace contractor bills. And I said, you know what? I haven't heard about this at all. Tell me about them. And so they sent me over a bunch of links about bills that have been introduced and it is horrifying. Basically, laws were introduced like overnight in 11 states that essentially said anybody who uses the internet to, to book a job or any kind of digital platform would preemptively and categorically be classified as an independent contractor. And this wasn't just about domestic work. It was about anybody, any kind of internet marketplace. And I was like, wow, this is really bad. So I basically got on a plane and flew down to Tennessee where one of the bills was introduced. And I just started marching myself around the state capitol, trying to find anybody who could tell me anything about this bill. And we somehow figured out how to get a meeting with the bill sponsor. And I sat down in his office and I asked him, well, whose problem are you solving with this piece of legislation? Which is quite sweeping. And he pulled out a card and said, oh, here's the, the card for the general counsel from Handy. And that's when it got confirmed to me that kicked off a huge fight between NDWA and, and the introduction of these bills. And we worked really hard that legislative cycle all around the country. And these bills were in North Carolina, in Georgia, in Tennessee, in California, in Alabama, when the dust settled, I was definitely bruised and bloody. I was flying around the country, testifying, talking to legislators about why this was horrific legislation. At the end of the day, what ended up happening was we won, we prevented the bill from passing in many states, including North Carolina and Georgia, California, where we banded together with other unions and allies. And then there were many states where we were unable to defeat the legislation. And that became the law in Florida and in Indiana and in Kentucky and a handful of other states. We were preparing for a 20 state fight the following legislative cycle. And NDWA convened many of our friends and allies to say, hey, this is really pernicious legislation. And we're worried that we are gonna be facing a 20 state fight. It took a lot of resources for us to fight them like that in mm -hmm. 11 different places. And at the end of the day, we weren't making advances. What we were doing was actually preventing another bad thing from happening. Because NDWA has been organizing domestic workers for years, including workers who use Handy, the movement was clear on what the problems were and what workers wanted. Here's what resulted. It's not cheap to have an 11 state fight and introduce legislation all over the country. And we had obviously stopped them and made a big stink about it and prevented mm -hmm. things from happening. And so the next stage of that campaign was a negotiation and a conversation around, is there a different way to engage with each other instead of to battle in various legislatures? And so we went into quite a long period of 
discussion and negotiation with the company. And earlier this year, we announced uh, a first-of-its-kind pilot with Handy. So we're focused in three states, in Florida, Indiana, and Kentucky, as a result of the campaign and the negotiations, was a pilot that did three things in those three states for cleaners, domestic workers who clean on that platform. It increased the base pay to $15 an hour on the platform. It established for the first time a paid time off. Or 25 for every single hour worked on the platform, which mm. is the equivalent of 17 paid days off if you worked full time on the platform. And there was several other small benefits around occupational accident insurance. If you get you know hurt on the job in a way, starting to try to pull together a package um, of scaffolding that protects workers at work. Those things have already gone into place. That wasn't like something that we negotiate and will happen in five years or something like that. Those things went into effect in June of this year. And so workers, cleaners in all three of those states got a pretty big pay bump. They now accrue paid time off for every single hour worked on the platform, and they all have occupational accident insurance. Wow. The more experimental part, the part that I'm very much involved in on a day-to-day basis, is a new process for worker input and voice. Obviously, when you talk to any gig worker across any sector, the lack of a human being to talk to is a big problem. Whether it's waiting somewhere for a job, like the customer cancels on you, you're somehow getting penalized for that. And so there's lots of issues that we have always known about in organizing handy workers. And this process is an experiment in workers having a direct line um, to the company on a monthly basis to resolve and address those concerns. Of course, we're inventing it. So we're tweaking it and evolving it every couple of months. The way that it's working right now is established a new organization called NDWA Gig Worker Advocates. Ah. And that workers are sitting in a two-hour meeting with the company where Gig Worker Advocates is playing a facilitative role here to come up with an agenda and the topics that are of most importance and we work together. Listening to stories of what happened with Handy in the United States, an urban company in India, and thinking of discussions with Aaron at Well-Paid Maids and others this season, it feels pretty clear who's the fairest. Companies can choose to fight in courts and legislatures. They can put their energy into having more and more control over workers, even surveilling and prohibiting their chat groups, all while claiming those workers are independent. But as we wind down this season of the gig, I'm feeling hopeful. To be sure, there are some things we've learned about how technology can strip the care from care work and reduce it to tasks to be optimized. How big data can be used to control and manipulate workers who are already vulnerable. But we've also learned that workers who are usually isolated and in the shadows can use digital technology to connect in ways they couldn't previously. That advocates can also find ways to use the aggregation of their data for organizing and to inform good public policy. And we've learned that good business models are possible in this sector. Remember the fairy tale Snow White? There was a magic mirror that wouldn't lie about who was the fairest of them all. I thought about that when I was hearing the urban company's story. On paper, a company can make itself look good to investors. But when workers hold up a mirror, we see it's not so fair. We humans need to keep holding up mirrors to technology asking ourselves whether it's really making our lives better, and finding ways to change what's not fair. That's at the heart of NDWA's pilot with Handy. I asked Poet to tell us what they were learning. We are very optimistic about this model. We're not saying that this is the only model that should happen in the gig economy. We're not saying this should replace unions in any way. 
we're saying we have a moral responsibility to improve the working conditions and provide exposure to organization to for workers to meet each other, to deliberate and to build their own confidence and power with each other to shape their own future. And I think we're starting to see a kind of reckoning around all of that in Silicon Valley, where there's a kind of light bulb moment happening for whatever reason, right? Where you can't run a platform if you're only focusing on one side. You have to focus on both sides. There's actual the business case to be made, right? For focusing on the labor side. And of course, obviously both a moral and ethical case to be made as well. And especially in the case of domestic workers, a, a historical case. But a very conceptual and high level had to say, what's the main problem with Silicon Valley? It's been this continuous treatment of workers as inputs and not users. Now that we're at the end of this episode, it's making me think of another well-known story about Frankenstein. Technology may be a kind of Frankenstein's monster. But in that story, the monster wasn't actually the problem. It was human beings and how they treated him. So back to that mirror and our beauty care workers in India, this particular tale doesn't yet have an ending. Remember, the company is suing workers for using WhatsApp to chat with each other. It's saying that it's criminal behavior when workers figure out how to use technology to connect and organize. Indian courts are gonna have to be the ones to hold up that mirror and decide whether only the rich and powerful have the right to determine how technology is used. So we're gonna have to stay tuned to Somya's reporting because this will have implications for all of us around the world. Meanwhile, while we wait, I asked Somya what the rest of us could do. I think if the protests showed us anything, was that companies that position themselves as being in this modern internet economy era in India, one thing which really makes them feel accountable is just the fact that they're called out on social media. These companies thrive on funding which comes from a lot of US venture fund companies and a lot of their investors and potential investors are on social media and they're following what their portfolio companies are doing. How is their positioning in the market right now? And so I feel the October protests did genuinely show us if enough pressure is created on a company, if the company feels it's actually on the back foot, I think that usually ends up working. Now we really are at the end of season two. We've heard that domestic workers have never had a collective voice and the digital economy could be creating opportunities for that for the first time. But just like I found out in season one when I learned about ride hailing, we can't just leave it to workers themselves. We need to all pay attention to the policy and legal fights they're facing. And for the final word, I want to go back to one of the wonderful drivers and organizers we all met in season one, Tess Munchik from Johannesburg. After the events we discussed, she left South Africa and moved to the United States, and she's now a care worker. And she keeps organizing too, as do all the drivers I met in season one. Here's what she said when I spoke with her a few months ago. I'm very happy that we did it. I think that it's very lonely for drivers to face these issues on their own. Very often they don't know whether it's just them that's going through things. We've been able to be a huge support to a lot of drivers. I think it is a very long, hard battle. One of the organizers in France, he said, never give up. <laughs> so I think that if I have to say anything, I think um, that's a word to all the organizers all over the world. Never give up and you are not alone. I'm Bama Athreya, and you've been listening to The Gig, Season 2, Who Cares? I'd like to thank this season's sponsors, 
Solidarity Center, and Global Works Foundation for their generosity. I'd also like to thank Open Society Foundations for their generous support of season one. And I'd like to thank all those who supported this production and especially all those who gave their time for the interviews. Trey Hester and Will Coley held my hand while I took my first steps into the podcasting world. John Ross was my wonderful producer and composer for season one. Evan Papp at Empathy Media Lab has been a fantastic producer for season two. And I'm grateful to the brothers and sisters in the Labor Radio Podcast Network who have been an amazing community online and offline. Do go to their website, laborradionetwork.org, to find great shows bringing you real stories of working people around the world.